0: For those of you who don't know me, I'm Maria Back and I study a group of Indian economists in the late 19th century. When I started on this relatively untrodden path some 5 years ago or so now, I used to get some rather odd looks and some dared to ask the oh-so-uncomfortable question, but why and how did you end up there? Part of why I remember these moments so vividly must be my insecurities playing up. As a young female scholar, it's not always easy feeling confident and comfortable in academic settings. But as I sat at my alma mater's graduation ceremony last year, this time on stage as a professor, I listened to one of our honorary degree recipients' speech.
1: I wish that you will remain curious about the world in which you live, that you will continue to ask questions, you will continue to want to know what is going on, and you will want to explain what you know about the world to other people, because... It is both asking questions and finding the answers and sharing those answers that I think is so important to our societies. And I also hope that you will have a deep interest in one or in many things. Something that really seizes your attention, that you want to know more about, that you enjoy doing, that helps you to enjoy a full and satisfying life. My own particular interest has always been history. From the time I was quite young, I remember being interested in the past, interested in stories about the past. I have a number of reasons, I think, why I went into history. The less noble motive was that I was very curious about people. I I love gossip. I love Hello! magazine. I love knowing what people are up to. And I think that curiosity has helped to drive me into history. I wondered in that
0: moment whether her curiosity made her one of the first to read and analyse female voices of the Raj. Did her curiosity make her look outside the box? In this episode I'll be discussing with three different scholars who study what I would label generally underrepresented thinkers, but more precisely in history perhaps, marginalised voices is a better term. Like my research, theirs looks at contexts and ideas that are not part of the mainstream or well-known research topics.
2: The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately I did not have to think
1: alone.
0: And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought Podcast, where all other things are never equal. As much as my inexperienced self hated that question, why would you look at something so unknown? The answer often tells us an interesting story about the researcher, but also about the world of research in general. The three scholars that I interviewed look at different time periods, spaces, and contexts, and there will be some clarifications as to how these scholars themselves think of their work. But all in all, they and I share some common interests, perspectives, and challenges. So here's why and how the three scholars I interviewed came to look at underrepresented protagonists.
3: Um, How I came to this topic is that I'd long been fascinated by the role of international Geneva during this interwar period. Um, I wrote both of my bachelor and master theses on the International Labour Organization, which was actually an organization founded alongside the League of Nations um, during the interwar and the wartime period. Um, When I started to think about my doctoral research, I wanted to continue probing the rich material I'd seen in the relevant archives but also expand my research beyond the ILO, and that's how I landed on the League of Nations. Um, the League of Nations is really a broad topic, so I had to find an entry point, point. and in considering what I could focus on, I realized that I didn't need to look very far. Um, Myself, I'm an American national. Um, I've been living and working in Geneva for about 15 years now. Um, Of course, less when I started my doctorate, but I was curious to explore what my path might have been had I lived here in the interwar period. When you look at official histories of the League of Nations, or really any international organization, they often focus on the executive head as primary actor, Um, Historically, this has been a largely male enterprise, and what I sought to do was sort of flip the baseline on its head and explore the history of the League of Nations that took women's activities as the starting point. That was? Jackie Eisenberg. I'm a historian. I completed my doctorate at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Um, and today I work as responsible for university engagement at the World Economic Forum. My doctoral thesis was titled American Women and International Geneva, 1919-1939, to 1939. and broadly what I looked at was the influence and activities of American women that wanted to be involved with the League of Nations. So this was an entity that existed before the United Nations, um, looking specifically at that period of 1920 to about 1940.
2: My name is uh, Gerardo Serra, and I'm a Presidential Fellow in Economic Cultures at the University of Manchester.
0: How did you how did you come to focus on the on, on these kinds of underrepresented areas or people? Um, what made you choose that?
2: Well, I mean, when I was when I was an undergrad, my, my favorite subjects were basically economic history, development economics and history of economic thought. And then when I took a course in African economic history during my master, I just fell in love with the idea of studying uh, Africa and Ghana in particular. And uh, what I wanted to do was to combine something which was about deeply um, embedded in African history, but also looking at the history of economics. So I just put the two things together. Yeah, that, that's all that there is to it, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a good answer. I think my my answer is very similar. <laughs> it's, it's, it's being fascinated by a part of the world that is really interesting. For me, it's India, for you, it's Africa. And then, and then this idea that, you know, history of economics is a really interesting field to study.
2: My research focuses primarily on the history of economics and statistics in 20th century West Africa. What I wanted to do, um, what I'm trying to do, is to treat Africa not simply as a net importer, um, let's say, of economic ideas and statistical practices, but to use um, Alan Tillis' expression, as a living laboratory where these ideas and practices acquired life. Um, of their own. Uh, specifically, most of my work has dealt with the ways in which political economy and statistics shaped the political transformation of Ghana from a cocoa exporting colony to a pioneer experiment in African socialism between the 40s and uh, the 60s. Yeah, so of course, there is a,
4: there is a much longer version of this story, but to give you, I think to give you the more, like, shorter or concise uh, uh, story would be, like, uh, so I, uh, I got interested in essentially studying how, you know, what was happening in terms of um, modern uh, economics and how those concepts and all were being viewed in India. And, and I, so I figured that the, in a sense, the starting point would be uh, 19th century India and that is how uh, i kind of you know in uh, accidentally uh, came across uh, this this very famous uh, lecture by um, well actually when i say very famous i mean in, you know in relative terms um, this famous lecture by mg ranade who was a uh, uh, who was a political and social reformer from maharashtra in and in 1892 he, uh, he delivered this lecture called indian political economy and where he kind of gave a it was a it was of course a lecture so it was, it also had a sort of polemical nature to it but um, so he kind of gave this whole critique of classical political economy and and spoke of how economics, what the task of economics in India should perhaps be. And that, in a sense, um, led to a kind of... Uh, so, and of course, M.G. Ranade passed away by 1901. And I wouldn't say there was much to be seen in his lifetime in this, but it kind of influenced a generation of... Uh, of scholars, I would say, um, following him, and so by that I mean, like, in the during at least the first two to three decades of, uh, of the twentieth century, who began to write and try to visualize what Indian economics could be, and uh, and so I began to focus on those thinkers, and uh, and that meant that if I had to see, and also I was, I was more, I became interested in the question of how was it that this that Indian economics was being played out and being understood in the academic space and so I came to focus on institutions and so therefore like universities at the time and uh, and on you know textbooks written specifically for the purpose of as introductions to uh, to students on Indian economics and of course as a, and there was the Indian Journal of Economics which was formed in 1916 and uh, simultaneous to that was the formation of the Indian Economic Association. So all these developments were taking place uh, fairly at the same time and so I kind of decided then to you know focus on these developments and see what it meant for uh, Indian economics.
0: That was my third interviewee,
4: Shaman Khadaiji, and I am a PhD student from the Centre for Political Studies in uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University.
0: She's also now working at the Jindal Global Law School, just outside of Delhi. So now that we've heard why the interviewees came to look at marginalised voices, look at people that hadn't been studied a lot before, let's ask why we should in general look at people that aren't as well known. Here's Jackie again.
3: I thought this study could allow me to make a valuable contribution by putting two seemingly separate fields of scholarship, those of women's history and the history of international organizations, into conversation with each other for mutual benefit. I thought that mixing two fields could open up new vistas for research by challenging conventions about suitable topics and methods in each of these fields. So that's really how I came to focus on this specific framing and question for my thesis.
0: As we heard already, Gerardo and I both put together history of economics, and economics, and our interest in the developing world to produce the research topics that we look at.
3: I think many people are, are increasingly aware that um, by exploring the same stories, um, by looking in the same places, we won't really gain new understanding, so there has to be innovation. There's, there's a lot of interest in, in revisiting old stories, but, but seeing them through new eyes, through new actors.
0: In general, these interlocutors give us new perspectives. They're situated in different spaces, in different time periods, and have different access to information which makes them see the world differently. So, more likely than not, we come up with different solutions
2: that are local. Uh, on the one hand, I wanted to give a voice to the Ghanaian, to the local economies, to the local economic community that, as, as you can imagine, has uh, never found a, a real place in conventional histories of economics. So I was interested in seeing how they actually worked as statisticians, as planners, as theorists, and as policy makers. On the other hand though, I don't want to give you the impression that my research deals with underrepresented economists only because it deals with uh, African scholars and thinkers. If anything, there are many work that are, sorry, there are many um, economists that pop up in my story that just happened to be there and they were traveling from all over the place they were traveling from the us they were traveling from poland they were traveling from from all over the place and clearly that shapes what i I think it's a very um, interesting cold war stories right and um yeah but basically i'd say that the um, the way I think of what I'm trying to do, um, basically my focus on unrepresented or underrepresented economists, I see it as an entry point to to look for new ways of conceptualizing what is political about economic and statistical knowledge. So clearly the issue is less, uh, has, has less to do with the originality of these ideas per se, with the degree of theoretical innovation, and more about the ways in which these writings, these ideas, these practices acquired political implication in a specific context. So for me, talking about underrepresented economists in this context is a way of thinking about the local impact of the transnational governance of of development organizations. It's a way of thinking about the relationship between Economic ideas and authoritarianism. between uh, authoritarianism and socialism, it's a way of um, uh, thinking about the ways in which the practical difficulties that statisticians faced when trying to gather data and put them together acquires political implications in a given context.
3: Um, another motivating factor for me to focus on this was that I wanted to explore the local side of an international question. I think that this is something that those of us that work as practitioners in international organizations often forget. While we work for policy change on a global scale, the local is often the scene of important interactions for global policy. Actors are attracted to the global mission of a given organization, but generally they start to contribute through small local actions. Really, international politics is not always high politics.
0: Now that we've discussed why we do this, let's talk about how we do this. We're going to look at how we define our protagonists and their contexts, different ways to deal with their writings and ideas, and different methods we could use.
4: So uh, the way in which that uh, my, I see my research as being a fairly underrepresented topic is, well, first of all, within India, at least, when it comes to building any sort of a history of the inst- institutionalization of the discipline, I mean, like in universities and all, and especially during like you know the second half of the 19th century and then the very early 20th century primarily like the first three decades i would say of the 20th century there is virtually like it's very hard to find any material so things that were written were long back and like literally like you know maybe if if you look also there are maybe a few paragraphs at the best here there so um in that way um this kind of, this kind of a disciplinary history of political economy or economics, I'm, I mean, I'm using the terms interchangeably here, um, is really not there in India. It's, uh, it has been done for, say, uh, it has been done somewhat to some extent for other disciplines like, say, history and sociology. Um, I mean, I have seen, um, I have seen materials on, you know, disciplinary histories of sociology and its emergence in specific regional settings or in uh, institutions, uh, for example, like the Bombay University, Calcutta University, etc. So, um, and in fact, so I draw a lot of information sometimes from those sources. So in that, in that one way, um, it is an underrepresented topic, uh, of course, in India. Uh, I mean, looking at this history uh, of economics in, in this kind of way, And of course, in general, also, I would say in the larger body of history of economic thought, I mean, and this, of course, the world over, I think this particular period of India is uh, is also definitely a bit more underrepresented considering that... um, there were uh, quite a few contributions coming at the time, you know, more in terms of responses and uh, critiques uh, by those thinkers, you know, from the late 19th century and the early 20th cent, uh, century, uh, you know, that were coming towards uh, what was uh, what was seen as the uh, shortcomings of classical political economy. And of course, here I'm, I'm saying, it, I'm saying it more like, you know, from the point of view of those prota- of the protagonists from that time itself. So, um, I, so I think those responses and critiques to what they were terming as classical political economy and what they were calling like, you know, British Orthodox doctrine was fairly uh, significant. And so to that extent, uh, it is perhaps an underrepresented, underrepresented uh, area of research. But I would say that the, the, this kind of the economists that I am studying in their own times were not actually marginal voices uh, in the sense that they came from uh, they came from some of the more privileged uh, economic and social groups uh, within India at the time they were very much all part of the university structure they were all um, they were like appointees of um, of the of the government uh, because they were all uh, because most people once they joined the universities over time it was like I kind of, of becoming it was like we're getting like a permanent or a tenure position was equal to getting being uh, put as a be, being given a position in the Indian educational service
0: so talk, talking about these these actors then you call them double double outsiders which I thought was a really interesting concept could you just um, elaborate on what you
3: mean by that? So I decided to call the subject of of my study Double Outsiders because I estimated that they were twice removed from traditional avenues of power and influence. So the first factor that qualified them as outsiders was that the US never joined the League of Nations. The Senate failed to ratify the Treaty of Versailles, which meant that the US was not a member of the League. Um, There is a bit of a change in condition over the period I explored. Um, the U.S. did accede to the International Labor Organization in 1934, and that's something I cover in one of the thematic chapters of my work. Um, but in general, uh, I qualify American women as outsiders by this first degree, by nationality, because they, they weren't allowed officially to partake in the activities of the League. Um, the second degree of outsiderness that I, I attribute to these women um, is because of their biological sex. Though they gained suffrage in 1920, American women still faced several roadblocks to influencing power or to exerting power. Um, They didn't have much chance of receiving a political appointment to the ILO after 1934 or being nominated to a league commission, which was one of the few avenues for American women to officially participate in the league, despite the U.S. not being a uh, a member of the league. Um, And the reason that they didn't have that access is because they were largely absent from high-profile American posts that would have been natural feeders for such positions.
0: Gerardo and I then discussed how he feels about different ways to approach research on lesser-known figures.
2: Before our generation, and let's say a few generations ago, how did historians of economics deal with obscure characters? Right? And it seems to me that they've adopted one of a few um, strategies. One is, of course, not deal with them at all. But otherwise, it's, it becomes almost inevitably, somehow they have to be tied back to the canon, either as precursors of someone. Oh, look, this obscure Chinese thinker in the 13th century that is talking about something that resembles the invisible hand. And that's why it's interesting. Or as a case of parallel discovery, or well, like, look, Marx was writing this uh, in England, and this person somewhere in India was saying something similar, and probably hadn't even read Marx or whatever. i mean, just you know assuming it. it's the, the hypothetical case, and yet there is this striking resemblance. But uh, as I said, there is always an attempt to tie them explicitly to the canon, and I think there's so many other ways. Right? We should stop. Thinking exclusively in those terms. We should go back to ask, okay, what does this Chinese thinker writing in this period tell me about the time and place he was living in? Which is how an historian would approach the question. That's why I was saying I feel much closer to how um, historians think and work other than um, economists from that point of view. You see you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, I see. There's a there's a there's a large difference. I that's really it's a really interesting point. It's one of the things that, that, that I struggled with the most. Um, under because because the thinkers that I looked at, uh, critiqued the canon, um, variantly. I mean, 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 really quite. Um, that that's why they started in Indian economics. You know, a different school of thought because they thought they, they believed that, and these two particular Indian scholars believed that the European political economy just could not explain the Indian context. And so, for me, it was kind of, I mean, I was kind of forced to get them to kind of butt heads with the dominant, what I call the dominant idea of development, because that's what their one of their main goals um, was. But it's true that then I do also do, um, I because I, 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 I guess part of, you know, yeah, I th- I think we do do that and part of the reason is because it's so hard to move away from thinking about the dominant ideas of of whatever. But at the same time, and this is and this is kind of my approach and this is where I do do stuff what I, I do uh, say things like uh, this scholar was a pre predis- uh, a, a precursor to Amartya sense theory mm-hmm. for example. And 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 I, a, I know that that also pleases the audience that I'm writing to, especially if I'm writing to an economic, ec- economics audience, whether it be history of economics or or economists. Um, but I, but but more than I'm not doing it because I want to speak to the canon and because I want to then feed this this canon. But actually, I find that intre- I find it interesting for many different reasons. One being, um, by placing these underrepresented individuals into the dominant debates around for example development or economic growth etc you are you giving agency to figures that have not had agency before have not had a voice etc which i think is a is a is a i mean it's a political project for sure and i think part of my part of the reason i do the research i do is because i think this is important right just like i think scholars who look at um female economists in history of economics are, are, are 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 engaging in a political project, they're activists right um and then so that's one thing then secondly, I think it's by putting them in conversation with these dominant figures, we're saying, look, they actually can speak at this level of intellectual curiosity creation, etc right so they aren't they 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 aren't inferior
2: um yeah, but then at the same time, I think this stands in a. At least for me, uh, the issue is a bit more problematic. It's true that you are making them visible to a specific scientific community, and in order to do that, of course, you have to um, speak a certain language and somehow... But at the same time, the relationship with agency is is a bit more problematic. Because on the one hand, you are empowering them by making them visible, but on the other hand, you are disempowering them by bringing them back into this rather than understanding them not on their own terms, but you know what I mean, right? Then the question would become internal would become about how these people chose to relate to the canon you you see what I mean, in that context in which they were operating which is a slightly different um, approach I think, rather than just Finding, and I'm not saying that's what you do, I'm saying that's what lots of people have done in the past, rather than finding analogies or similarities between Adam Smith or Mark, between people within the canon and people outside. So again, making the canon the only justification for studying um, this, kind of, um, this kind of people. In a slightly different context, I remember having a similar conversation with some students of mine a few years ago and the discussion was about um, Thomas Sankara, so the revolutionary uh, president of uh, Burkina Faso, who stayed in power know, only three years before 87. And of course, in the, in the global imagination, Sankara is the African Che Guevara, right? And a big part of my of my students were like, yeah, that's great, you know, they thought this was empowering, but then there was actually a Marxist in my class who said, no, it's not, we you're still imposing another metric you're still accepting his contribution only as far as you can link it to something else rather than you know maybe it was someone else why do you need to invoke someone else's name to empower a specific historical figure right there is something uh, almost disempowering about that the need for an external reference that might legitimize a legit you know you see what i mean
0: I don't, I don't see that's the what it is so um, what I do or what other people do when they necessary so some people will, will that's that that was that's why they'll do it they'll they'll link it back to the canon in order to get listened to because then they the, the ideas disseminate further and so on and it's more interesting it's like saying you know I'm friends with so and so you know. <laughs>
2: exactly <laughs> yes
0: right and that's a way to legitimize yourself right um so of course i, I think some people may do it like that and, and perhaps a lot of the time subconsciously but for me that's not what i'm doing i'm doing it because that is their context right so a yes okay i said you know it does it does give them legitimacy that they are able to talk to these um to these scholars that we, you know, just automatically think are good, but it's also they are in that context, right? So one of the one of the things that I figured out doing the research uh, that I did in my PhD was that the, the these scholars were just thought of being copiers of European thought. So it's just they were these recept- receptacles that just kind of absorbed um, information. It's a bit like how we look at, you know, traditional teaching is a bit like that too. We assume that we as professors are just going to put like information into these cylinders, which are our students, and then they regurgitate it later for the exams and that's it. Whereas now we're starting to realize uh, that's not really how the process of learning actually works. Um, and the same thing for, for 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 these Indian economists that I looked at, you know, they had to cite John Stuart Mill and James Mill. They had to cite Adam Smith. I mean, just like Friedrich List had to cite, you know, Adam Smith because if you come after somebody and and somebody so famous, that is, I mean, and we have to do it too. And when we when we publish, when we, you know, yeah, when we publish, we have to cite all the things that have done before. It's just the fact that you know you arrive in a particular moment in time, and then that context is imposed on you. You can push at the boundaries of the of the constraints in that context, but 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 you're there.
2: No, but I said I I, I think I drew this distinction between finding analogies and actually interrogating the scholarly practice of the actors you're talking about, right? These are That's what I was saying, that these are these are two different things, exactly. But, um, you know, another instance that comes uh, to mind, uh, another example, which I find very interesting, to think about this, and to think specifically about Africa in the 1960s, so clearly a very important decade for development economics as a whole is something that might be discussed as the the global division of labor that was emerging. And I have in mind specifically another presidential address, not from Ghana, but from uh, Nigeria, from 1962, in which the president of the Economic Society was basically saying, well, let those people in the West produce theories and grand narratives of development and whatever they want. What we need to do here, because there's a country to save and a country to develop, is to collect data, right? There is also that other thing in which hierarchies that you know, always, uh, almost inevitably, at least among contemporary economies, tend to put theory first, right? Theory is this noble pursuit and all the empirical stuff somehow takes a second place. And it's interesting to see how these hierarchies are um, challenged in specific contexts. So, these people in Nigeria say, yeah, let them say whatever they want about the ultimate goal of what development is, you know? We got other issues to deal with and the solution to that is not to debate about the meaning of development but to have good statistics to make a development plan i'm not saying that's the way forward i'm not saying that's representative because things changed very abruptly within a few years when there was a proliferation of uh, um, neo-marxist and dependency approaches to development in, in west africa and obviously that was again about you know uh, putting the grand narratives at the center stage, right? And again, asking questions of applicability and relevance, a bit like your Indian economist I understand. To what extent can we apply these ideas to us, right? Discussions about class formation or the existence of uh, classes in, in pre-colonial Africa. And uh, yeah, that's actually something I'd like to work on in the future. I've always been fascinated by the fact that one of the most influential centers, let's say, not, not school, not a school necessarily, but a group of people interested in Marxist political economy in Nigeria was at the University of Zaria in the deep um, north. And I've always been fascinating in understanding how um, Marxian and Islamic traditions of economic thinking got along in that period. I don't think it's been... I mean, there there is some literature on this part of the history of Nigerian Marxism, but surely there's more that could be done about it. I'm also not particularly interested in the question of originality, right? I choose the economic ideas I study because they help me understand the political context, right? It's about this two-way exchange between the political and economic order that really interests me. So the question of originality is not is not too relevant for me. It's one that I uh, that I tend to avoid, and I think it helps to avoid precisely. It helps to you know to, to 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 skip it precisely because otherwise you get stuck into this kind of conversation. Why should we read these guys when we have Adam Smith and Marx? And I thought that's not necessarily the point, right? But it's about interrogating other reasons as to why you should read economists in the first place. Not to find uh, snippets of uh, a truth that can be mobilized in other contexts, but to understand, well, maybe to understand what Foucault called regimes of truth, right? So (laughs) regimes of uh, truth that apply to specific times and places and see what is the actual place of these actors, of these voices in shaping this context, that particular context we're interested in.
0: I then asked my interviewees about the methods they used.
3: I think it's a tricky question when it comes to this idea of looking at prosopography. Um, it was something that was suggested by my thesis advisor because I really wanted to take a ground-level approach to exploring the League of Nations. I wanted to find out who were these women, what did they contribute? Um, and then in discussing it with him, he had said, here's this, this methodology, do you want to have a look at it? Um, could it be relevant? Um, So a prosopography, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, um, it's roughly explained as a composite biography, Um, and I found, as anyone who ends up looking at my thesis will see, that it was not what I ended up doing, but I found the method to be quite invaluable, because the idea is that you're sort of taking, my interpretation of it is that you're taking what you know about various actors and trying to put them together to see what was the typical case, and with this question of American women in interwar international Geneva, um, so little was known about many of the actors that even just delving into the details of who these people were and what they contributed um, unearthed other stories. So the I guess the headline level summary of how did this influence my research would be, um, it gave me great ideas for how I approached my research, but at the end of the day, it was not one that I ended up completing, that I ended up using. Um, but I would say that you know, going on the quest to a prosopography is, is quite, um, quite useful for anybody who's looking at an alternative interpretation of a story um, because for me, in my case, it helped me unearth actors that I, I don't think anybody um, had thought to write about in relation to this question of American women and the League of Nations in the interwar period.
0: So it's almost like it was a first step to understanding... Who you could focus on and f- and unearthing a story that wasn't there before
3: exactly exactly because in order to to form this this in order to work towards this baseline case, I had to go deep into the details to find out you know who these women were where they came from and where they were acting um and that set me off on quite a um ground level almost minute micro um level approach rather than looking at broad policy trends um, I looked at those in parallel but it was really sort of an unearthing an, an of of the figures that were active in the first instance
0: right because what you then go on to do is is as you say much more micro level contextualized um, kind of you, you're, you, you're historicizing these figures right you're adding depth and 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 voice to
2: these actors exactly at least for me, an important part of the, of the issue has to do with embracing a more holistic view of what the history of economic thought in non-Western context might might look like. What do I mean by this? So, uh, admittedly, even in uh, if you allow me to use the expression mainstream history of economics there's been somehow somewhat um, an attempt to shift away the focus from what economists think to, say, the economic ideas of ordinary people. And I'm Personally, very sympathetic to the idea that the history of economic thought should not be confined to professional economists, so however, you define that, which, right, sociologically speaking, even in the West, is a very recent category. Um, at the same time, we should also think of the specific limitations and opportunities, depending on how you look at it, that the actual evidence uh, indicates. So, for example, if you want to write the history of uh, pre colonial African economic thought, well, of course, we need a radically different approach because written sources are going to be scarce, and this emerged very clearly from a series of conversations I had a few months ago in Nigeria, where I saw, where I, saw, where I met a group, a generation of young scholars that is producing histories of pre-colonial um, African thought on the basis of proverbs and other oral sources, and uh, I must say, in, in recent times, the last thing that truly excited me historiographically speaking, when it comes to this, is the work of uh, Rhiannon Stevens. Uh, she's an historian of what is today's uh, Uganda at Columbia University. So I doubt that she considers herself a historian of economic thought, which is interesting in itself. And I also doubt that so-called mainstream historians of economics are reading her work. But what she's doing, I find, it is truly amazing, because basically she's reconstructing the history of concepts of wealth, and poverty, and how they relate with other issues like motherhood, for example, in eastern Uganda over a time span of 2,000 years, and the way in which she's doing it is by combining uh, very different things. So there is, for example, there's insights from, uh, well, Reinhard Koselleck's vision of conceptual history, but also lots of ethnographic, linguistic, archaeological sources and methods. I find it really, really exciting. So if you tell me how do you want the the future of the history of economic thought in, only non-West, in non-Western context to look like, I would tell you this is one possible direction, one in which we are not crippled by the difficulties we faced, but rather enriched and forced to push it forward in other direction, to take on board um, all sorts of methodologies and all sorts of sources to produce something that is really, really, really rich. Finally,
0: an important thing to understand and identify is the constraints that our lesser-known protagonists encountered because of their marginalised position and because of the political context and socio-economic context that they found themselves in. And this creates difficulties for the
3: researcher. Um, Because I, I took on this framing of the double outsider, it means that I posited there was a greater degree of informality to what they were doing and where they were acting. So this did impact how I I conducted my research. Um, It meant I had to locate traces in the official records and to read between the lines to uncover the true contributions of these women. Uh, Mundane documents like personnel records um, and committee membership listings from private organizations helped to identify the subjects of my study and to draw the narrative. Um, And where things were available, contemporary journalistic accounts and personal letters ended up giving more shape to the story. Um, I really felt as I was conducting this research that it was a puzzle. I consulted archives in the first instance in Geneva, but also more widely in Switzerland, um, elsewhere in Europe, and in the U.S. to complete the narrative. Um, I think one of the things that was quite gratifying is that you could often, in undertaking this multi-archival study, get part of the story in one archive and complete it with a copy of the document or the response to the letter you'd seen in one archive in a different repository. Um, it was also fascinating methodologically to see that through this multi-archival study, you can really uncover the biases and gaps of the people creating the archives um, as well as of the archives themselves and how they, they curate the collections.
0: Right. There's some biases in in the way that the archives are curated because these these people are double outsiders or marginalized or whatever word you want to use.
3: Exactly. Um, and I think there I would draw upon my experience. So before I um, started my doctorate alongside my master's, I, I worked as an archivist in an international organization for a period. Um, and it's it's extremely interesting to see the way that um, organizations like to... Um, Process files. Um, I I this is going back to what I said before about um, history, try- largely written for international organizations around the executive head as key actor. Um, you really see that in the way that the 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 archives are constructed in many organizations. That there are specific series dedicated to the the upper management. But um, when you're looking at sort of the more workaday workers or contributors to um, commissions or like bodies it really it really takes a bit of digging and an understanding of the way the archive is is constructed to find the right evidence
0: yeah that's interesting and 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 so 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 it seems like you did a lot of digging and had to do that the search for these documents was was in and of itself a a part of your research um, and then obviously reading and analyzing the text but did you find did, did you struggle with the lack of of M um, sources that, that there are because these
3: figures are less known? Yes and no. I mean, I really saw and see my research as a starting point. Um, it's, it's a starting point because it's, it started to uncover and elaborate who these figures were, what they were doing. Uh, there's by no means could it be a comprehensive document. Um, I was I was frustrated because sometimes you'd see these interesting stories pop up of um, somebody who, for example, was an American woman who happened to work at the International Labor Office after the U.S. accession to the International Labor Organization in 1934. But the records that the organization retained on this person were quite sparse, you know, really basic um, personnel records, and the person was such a figure that didn't necessarily have a private archive elsewhere. Um, So you you have a lot of questions that are raised that you you don't feel you can answer. But I think already the fact of sort of teasing out these characters and and getting their story out into the world is already a good first step.
2: There was one instance in which someone took a more um, confrontational stance. But the issue was slightly different in the sense that I was presenting a paper on... uh, uh, economists working under dictatorship, which is a big, big interest of mine, right? The kind of ways in which political context create uh, constraints and opportunities on, on what economists do. And uh, this person said, well, why should we care? These people were just saying what they were expected to say. So you see, the issue is a bit different. It's not about the fact that it deals with Africa, but rather with the fact that sometimes people Um, prefer take a very simplistic stance on the relationship between, on the ways in which power relations in a political context shape what what economists do.
0: This reminds me of of the the kinds of narratives I've had with some scholars about the Indian economists I look at and they go, well, you know, they were so busy uh, dealing with, poverty in india at the time that they clearly didn't have time to create any knowledge um which is a just as simple as you said i think it's a very simplistic view of what these were people were doing or or that even humans do right i mean if you're a professor and a researcher you you clearly don't have just one uh, goal in mind right you have you do lots of different things and um and and so for, for your in your case there if you're looking at scholars that are under a dictatorship, okay, they will be constrained to a larger extent than um, economists, not in a you know totalitarian state, but that doesn't mean that they have that they don't have ways in which they can put their own opinions in, or they might you know just just the fact that they exclude things I find really fascinating in my research. You know the the, the the that's that's something. I mean, it's very hard to uh, it, methodologically. It's hard to find and and to analyze. But it but it's fascinating, right? What what they leave out can actually tell you a lot about what what they're trying to say.
2: Absolutely, I, I completely agree, and I think I'll never be tired of repeating this. Whether we're talking about um, the USSR or socialist Ghana or um, fascist Italy from a strictly methodological point of view, studying, well, not just economists, but the life and work of intellectuals in general under dictatorships is always methodologically so instructive because it forces you to read between the lines, right? It forces you to ask yourself all sorts of questions about censorship, about post uh, about concrete strategies of actually dealing with a system of power, right? These kinds of issues that I
0: that I was that I was faced with a lot in my PhD and still today about how, you know, people ask me about the lives of the people that I... My protagonists, the... the uh, and, and lots of different, like, small details that are just almost near impossible for me to find. And, I mean, I hope to do more archival research in India, but but the, a lot of it, A, that part of the world doesn't archive um, documents as much, definitely not during the 19th century. And And then on top of that, these... Figures may have been well-known and they were elite in India, but not quite as elite as someone like Adam Smith or um, Karl Marx or, you know, and so they're just not going to have as much information about them, right? And just because of the sheer fact that they are represented, they were at the time and still are, etc.
2: Yes, but this is, as I said earlier, I think we should take this as an opportunity. Do a history of economic thought that is less about remarkable individuals and more about communities and cultures you know they come together in specific times um, and places it also forces us to look more broadly i mean I talking about my period or yours is, is different but certainly you not know, look at um, newspapers to talk to people to interrogate sources with, with an open mind right? without necessarily having the obsession or looking for the imprint of the remarkable individual we want to know about but as you said the archival challenges are are powerful i mean um, i spent uh, seven months in total in ghana doing archival work and i've encountered all sorts of uh, of situations as you can imagine although it must be said that uh, the national archives of ghana where i did most of my research are Populated by hard working people who tried their best in spite of government neglect and in spite of government lack of funding and getting all sort of exogenous shocks that come that come their way. Um but then again, if I if I can bring um, a personal note, perhaps. In my um, intellectual development, I was really uh, was deeply influenced by well, at some level at least, by Italian and French microhistory. Now, of course, what I do is not microhistory the way uh, Carlo Ginzburg would define it. But at the same time, I think there are some valuable lessons there because it forces you, it, it asks you to be open and imaginative about the ways in which you start with a detailed, seemingly irrelevant case study and what you can do with it. The way in which you build and you conceptualize the implications of what you were doing, leaving aside the specifics of what proponents of microhistory thought microhistory should be, that is the biggest lesson I think. it's an invitation to be open about how you build the link between the specific case study you're studying and what that actually tells you about something else. And this is where you know this is where we should play the game. That's where the match is is open. Precisely in showing people that the seemingly obscure economists, sure, they didn't write Wealth of Nations, but so what? Who cares? Is that the point? There's still powerful windows onto some specific aspects of the past. They might not help us understand Adam Smith or Marx better, but they might help us understand all sorts of other interesting things. Again, for me, it's about the interplay of economic and political discourse of economic theory and political practice and so on and so forth but there's lots of other ways in which we can interrogate these sources and these lives no matter how, no how sparse the traces they left behind in the archives are and somehow recombine them in original imaginative way and see where that takes us
0: on that positive note i end this episode I hope you enjoyed our discussions. I want to thank my interviewees, Jackie, Sharman, and Gerardo for their time and for sharing their thoughts, perspectives, and challenges. It was certainly a great learning experience for me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine, and our features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize Banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, CetrisneverParabus.net for more information. Follow us on Twitter, ceterisnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.